Matthew chapter 2, we're going to look at a message entitled, The First Characters of the First Christmas. So I want you to turn in your Bibles. If you have a copy of God's Word, it would be Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, as I share a Christmas message with you that I've been looking forward to preaching, and, and we want to welcome you again. If you're a guest here at Great Hills, God bless you. Thank you. It's no accident. It's not by chance that you are here today. Somebody invited you. Uh, maybe a loved one, maybe a friend, or maybe you're watching us on television or live stream on the internet, and uh, we're just glad that you're here, and I want to say Merry Christmas to you, and God bless you as we look today in Matthew chapter 2, as we look at the characters there of the first Christmas, the first nativity. Now, Luke chapter 2 will have some other characters, and will accentuate people like Mary and, and Joseph and the angels and the shepherds. And it's not that I am ignorant about those characters. I know they exist, and I know they play a prominent role. However, today, we're only going to focus on the characters of Matthew chapter 2. For example, we'll look at, first of all, Jesus the Savior. Then we'll look at Herod, the ruthless king. We'll look at the wise men, the worshipers. And then we will look at the religious aristocracy, the religious elite, the, the priests and the Pharisees as they were knowledgeable and yet they were very much blind as to the very person of God who was born there in the stable uh, in Bethlehem. So today is Matthew chapter 2. So looking forward to preaching a message, a pure biographical message. Today we're going to study biography today and we're going to look at these key characters of the first nativity. So let me read the text and then we'll walk through it together. The Bible says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east, they came to Jerusalem. And they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to what? Church, what does it say? We have come to worship him. Now when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had, heard, when he had gathered all the chief priests... And the scribes, now there they are, the religious aristocracy. They are the pastors and the priests, the, the leaders of the religious, of the Jews there. And that's important. I don't want you to miss these guys. When he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them, Herod inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. And so they said to him, they are knowledgeable, and yet they are very blind. It says... Oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. Now, the prophet would be a man by the name of Micah. Micah would record these words 700 years prior to the birth of Christ. And the religious scribes and the lawyers and the Pharisees, they knew precisely where the Messiah would be born because Micah chapter 5 verse 2 is quoted almost verbatim here in the quotations that I read before you. It even uses the word Bethlehem. It says, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are not the least among the rulers of Judah. Why? For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So now they have given the information to Herod. Now he knows precisely what the religious crowd knows, that Jesus is going to be born, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, he determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may also, that I may come and worship him as well. 
But when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Now, when they had come into the house, you say, well, I thought he was born in a stable. I thought he was born and placed in a feed trough, in, a, in an animal barn, if you will. Well, he was. The Greek word here for child is padion. At this time, Jesus is months old, probably even a year old. And so when the wise men come, they don't come to the barn, to the stable, as many of our nativities depict it, but they actually come to a house, to a place where Jesus now resides in Bethlehem before he goes to Egypt and finally makes his way back to Nazareth. So when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Now that's the, uh, that's the men from the east, the Magi, the wise men. They come and they bow down and they worship him. And notice what they do. They open up their treasures and they presented gifts to Jesus. And here are the gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream. You know, this, this whole pericope, this whole narrative of Christmas... It is fraught, it is saturated with the supernatural. Have you noticed that? The virgin is going to give birth to a child. Uh, That's pretty miraculous, would you not agree? A virgin is going to give birth. Men hundreds and hundreds of miles from Persia are going to see a bright light, a star even perhaps. They're going to look at that star, and that star is going to lead them all the way to Bethlehem. And they're going to come and they're going to give gifts. And now they're going to be supernaturally forewarned in a dream. I mean, this is pretty supernatural. They are going to receive a dream. And the dream goes like this. They should not return to Herod. They So they departed for their own country in another way. So we're going to look at these first characters of Christmas. As I said earlier and I've said many times here at Great Hills, my favorite genre of reading is biography and autobiography. So that's why I'm kind of giddy this morning. I'm actually a little excited. I've got to study the last two weeks about these key characters of Christmas, and I couldn't wait to come share with you because I get to preach to you my favorite type of preaching. My favorite type of reading is presidential and religious or missionary biography. I just finished reading the, um, the, the book, a second book on Abraham Lincoln, And uh, Mrs. Ochester, I finally went and saw Lincoln. I actually saw it in my home. I remember Miss Barbara says, have you seen that? I said, no, I'm kind of behind the times. And so I finally watched it this week, and I just loved it. It was fascinating because I love that genre of reading. And now I'm in the midst of reading a book on William Carey. And let me me tell you just just a little bit more about his life because there are some characteristics in his life that segue beautifully into the lives of especially Joseph and Mary. And so William Carey is known as the father of the modern missionary movement. In 1792, Carey was in England, and well, in in um, in in England, and he was in Northampton. And the the British Baptists gathered together, and they they commissioned the first modern missionary in that Baptist society, and they sent him uh, to India. He was so excited, he took his son Felix. And he was going to sail with Felix, his son, and with another man by the name of Thomas. And they were going to go plant their lives in Bengali, India. And so they were, ju- they were getting on the boat. And as they were getting on the boat, 
Somebody came to them and said, we got terrible news for you. You guys cannot sail to India because Thomas, your co-laborer, your co-missionary, has some creditors and he owes some money. So all of y'all are going to have to get off the boat and you're going to have to go sail another time. And, and as I was reading that, you, you just cannot describe the palpable, just absolute, I mean, just despair of William Carey. Now, he had already told his wife and his pregnant wife and two children, hey, I'm going on a missionary journey. I will not see you for three years. Felix, our son, is going with us, and uh, God's called me, and I will see you in three years. Well, they get off the boat, and he goes home. Now, remember, this is before telephones. This is before, certainly before, you know, texting and, and sending messages. And he just shows up at the house, and his wife is like, she thought she'd seen an angel. She says, well, you cannot be my husband because he's on a boat on the way to India. And he said, no, honey, it's me. And the providence and the sovereignty of God our plans have been thwarted, and I really do not know what we're going to do. And I think about that story. And that reminds me of so many times in our lives, especially in the lives of the followers of Christ, how we have these grandiose plans, we have these ideas, and yet it just seems to be fraught with difficulty and trying circumstances. And, and all we're trying to do is do our best and do what God wants us to do, and it seems like everything just comes unraveled, and our plans are frizzled and frazzled, and we look up to God and say, God, what is going on? But this is what happened. Carrie, because he missed the boat, and through a set of circumstances, in a few weeks, he was able to take his wife, his pregnant wife, their two children, and Felix the son, and all of them now are able to get on the boat and sail to India and plant their lives there. It's just the way God does things. God takes his children, and instead of exempting us, and saying, oh, I'm just going to take care of you. You're never going to have any travails or, or vicissitudes of life or no difficulty. I'm just going to protect you, and we're just going to walk you through life, and everything's going to be rosy. It's going to be grand, and that is not Christianity. In fact, God opens up the floodgates of travail and difficulty, and he allows those waters to flow over our otherwise tranquil souls. You say, yeah, I get that. Why does he do that? That's just God's way of doing it. He allows the difficulty to come into our lives so that we can see our utter dependence upon Him. And through His sovereignty, and through His providence, through His grace, He will guide us ultimately to a far better destination. I think about Jesus in Matthew 14. He tells the disciples, get in the boat and sail to the other side, knowing full well that as they get in the boat and sail to the other side, they're going to be a massive storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's just about to kill them and take their lives, and yet God sent them right into the teeth of the storm so he could manifest his grace, his sovereignty, and his providence and lead them safely to the other side. Now get this. She is pregnant, all right? She is great with child, Mary is. They have to leave Nazareth. They got to go to Bethlehem because of the tax, the census. Now, ladies, being pregnant, they tell me, is a difficult way to go. It's a difficult life. I mean, there's morning sickness, first trimester. There's, ooh, there's growth there the second trimester. And, ooh, Nelly, come on, baby, third trimester. How would you like to get on a donkey and dry and ride for a few hundred miles? How about that? You say, yeah, brother, that, that's interesting. Why would God let that happen? I mean, for, after all, she has given birth to the Son of God. And there Joseph and Mary go, and they're making their way, meandering their way down to Bethlehem, and they arrive. 
And what happens in Bethlehem? I mean, they roll out the red carpet. They go, oh, Mary. Oh, Harold, Mary born. Oh, women, you're blessed and you're awesome. And come on in. And the keeper of the inn says, honey, we ain't got no room for you. I mean, the, the, it's, it's all closed up. I mean, it's packed because everybody's coming that was, have lineage and ancestry here. And so the best we can do is we can put you over here. Now, we have glamorized this, and we've made it look something like it's not. Guys, this is an, this is an animal stall. This is where you put, this is really profound, animals. Okay, this is, they, they put animals there in a the, in the manger. Oh, way in a manger is nothing but a feed trough. It's a grimy feed trough. She gives birth. She places the Son of God in a feed trough. And it just reminds me. Strange way to save the world. God's ways are unique. God's ways are strange. If you're here today and you're struggling and you're trying to do the right thing and God has taken you to and through this circuitous route, He could have taken you as the crow flies, taken you straight to your destination. He could have made it easy for you. He could have made it comfortable for you, but He, but he didn't. He's allowed difficulty. He's allowed the winds to blow upon your otherwise tranquil soul. And you cry out to heaven and say, Oh God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? And God says, Welcome to my family. That's the way I treat my own. I lead you in a way, a sovereign way, so that you will see your utter dependence upon me and you'll continue to trust in me. Do I get a vote on that? No, you don't. <laughs> it's just the way God does it. So first of all, let's look at Jesus the Christ. God the Father surely did not exempt God the Son from this circuitous route, through this travail, through this difficulty. Of course, the, uh, the ultimate example would be the cross. But look at the cradle. Look at the way he is born. Here Jesus Christ comes. Matthew 1, 21 says, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will what? Anybody? He will save his people from their sins. Now, the word Jesus itself literally means to save. And so early on in Matthew 1, 21, you, you read with me that Christ has come in order that he may save his people from their sins. Why? Why did he have to come and save us from our sins. Well, number one, we needed a Savior, and number two is because we are sinners. The Bible says, for all of us have sinned, and we have fallen short of God's divine expectation for our lives. And so Jesus comes, and the Bible says, in, in the grandest, most popular, and frequently quoted passage in all the Word of God, John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. I was sharing with our OLC uh, a party on a Thursday afternoon. We had a great time, many children, great presentation. Uh, it was just fabulous. And I shared just briefly as the children were screaming in the background, you know what, preachers, there's just time you got to speed up your message. I mean, you, you may have some things you want to say, but, you, you know, the kids are, are getting restless and the parents are looking at you like, you, got, you only got a few minutes, brother, say it. And so this is what I said. I said, there are some verses in the Bible that I feel sorry for. I feel sorry for Romans 8, 29, <laughs> which is a wonderful passage of Scripture. And I feel sorry for John 3, 17, because everybody knows John 3, 16. Do you know what John 3, 17 says? It says this, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be... Anybody? Anybody? might be saved. That's his name. 
Jesus. It means the one, the Messiah who has come to save. Why did he come? Because we needed a Savior. Why did he come? Because we are sinners. Charles Wesley's famous carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I love this. Maybe my favorite. He's the brother of John. Most people know John Wesley, founder of the Methodist denomination. But his brother Charles was equally gifted, Oxford graduate, just like John. And he wrote these words, and I just love the rich theology when it says, Mild he lays his glory by, he's born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, he's born to give us a second birth. He's born to give us a second birth. The Bible says in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Who is lost? We all are lost. We all need a Savior. We all have two things in common. We all are created in the image of God, and we all bear the depths of sin. You think about that. Every person born is born with the image of God deeply embedded upon them. Unlike the plants and the animals and the inanimate stars of the universe, no other creation under heaven has been given the imago Deo, the very image of Almighty God implanted upon their very psyche, implanted upon their very being. What does that mean? What does it mean to have the image of God imprinted upon us? It means that we, only we as humanity, have the capacity to know Almighty God. I mean, we have the intelligence. We have the, listen, you'll never see a chimpanzee send another chimpanzee to, to Mars, okay, or on the moon. You'll never see one of those creatures in there performing open heart surgery. I'm telling you, mankind is the pinnacle, is the apex of the creation of God. And it's not because of our grand intelligence. It's because of our capacity to know and worship the living God. You have that capability. You have that ability to know God and worship God. You say, yeah, I have that in me. Where did that come from? God put that there. We all are worshipers. We're all going to worship somebody or something. Usually it's us. It's ourselves. But God has embedded in us the image of God. And number two, we are born as sinners. And the Bible in the book of Romans beautifully, theologically, eloquently says that in Adam all die, in Christ we're made alive, but in Adam we are born with this original Adamic nature and we are sinners. Now, some of you want to debate me with that, but you must not have a preschooler. Anybody that has a preschooler believes in original sin. Can I get an amen? I mean, the, you don't have to teach them to claw the eyes out of their sibling. You, you don't have to teach them just to say, that's mine, it's mine. You're like your little demon. Where did you get that from? Well, they, they're sinners. We all are sinners, and that's why Jesus came is because we have a sin nature that has to be dealt with. And here's the beauty of Christianity. All other religions make an attempt to eradicate the sin nature, to deal with that chasm, that void, that emptiness. And all other religions have this in common. Do, do, do. Do the best that you can. Reach up to God. Perform your good deeds. And, and maybe your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds. And when you die, maybe, maybe, maybe you'll get to be with God in heaven. And that is all the world religions except Christianity. And Christianity is not based on what we do. It's based on what Jesus did. And because he died, 
He came down, born in the cradle, yes, in the incarnation, Jesus the Christ, the Savior. But Jesus, not only was He born, but He lived. And not only did He live, He died. And the reason He died is because of what I talked about a minute ago. It's because we all are sinners. Deep down, we know we need help. We know we need cleansing. We know we need to be reconciled to God. Where does that come from? How in the world could evolution produce such a depth of personality and psyche in, in the man, in the heart of man? Where in the world does that come from? It only comes from God. God shows us our great need for Him. We try to drown it out. We try to intoxicate ourselves and move it out, but it's there. We have this great chasm. Augustine is right. We are restless until we find our rest in Him. So that's Jesus the Christ, the preeminent one. There is no Christmas without Christ. There is no kingdom without a king. It's all about Jesus. wish I could say more about that, but I'm going to get through my message. Amen. It is. It's all about Him. Praise the Lord. All right, number two is Herod the ruthless king. If you're taking notes, who is this guy? You know, we, we read a lot about Herod and his offspring throughout the New Testament. But this guy was, he was a very clever, crafty, ruthless man. Let me share some things about him. He was born in 74 B.C. And uh, he dies in 4 B.C., right after the birth of Christ. Obviously, we, we just read about that. Herod uh, was of the tribe of Esau. He was an Edomite. He was not really a Jew from the descendant of David. And so he's called, look, look at this, he's called Herod the king, in quotations, because he's really not the king of the Jews. But Mark Antony and Octavius came to the Roman Senate, and they said, we are pleased with this guy. He's crafty, he's clever, and they recommended to the Roman Senate that this man, Herod, become king of the Jews. And Octavius and Anthony made it happen, and the Roman Senate said, you are the king of the Jews. His dad was a great politician. His dad was appointed by none other than Julius Caesar himself. So he has this, this line, he, and when he was 22 years of age, his dad made him the governor of Galilee. And he is a brilliant, bright, crafty king, but he's also... He's also a builder. As you study the life of Herod, you'll notice he built things like Masada. If you've ever been into the Dead Sea and you've ever made your way to Masada, like we had a chance to do, it is, it is this amazing hideout of the Jews where many Jews committed mass suicide. Herod had built this escape uh, from Rome, and he also built the temple. He began building it in 19 B.C., and you see it still under construction, and you see it destroyed in A.D. 70, but it was Herod the Great. The crafty, clever, politician king. But here's the thing about Herod that I want you to get the most. This guy is one paranoid dude. He knows he's not the rightful king of the Jews, so when anybody has a hint of the real king of the Jews being born, he gets real nervous. And the Bible says in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 2 that he says, Oh no, they're telling me that the Messiah has been born. The real king of the Jews has been born. So this Herod goes and he makes an edict, a proclamation that all male children two years of age and younger are slaughtered. And he did that. He did that. Because he didn't want any rival or threat to his kingdom. That's why I've named him Herod the Ruthless King. He's a character, is he not? He's a character in the first Christmas. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, 
born under the law so that he might redeem mankind. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. Okay, next let's talk about, this is my favorite part besides Jesus the Christ. Wise men, the worshipers. Who are these Magi guys? I'm just fascinated with these astronomers, uh, these brilliant uh, men from Persia, from the east. You say, how in the world could they know about a Jewish Messiah in, in Persia of all places? Well, you remember in 537 B.C., a man by the name of Cyrus, the Persian king, he gave an edict that all the Jews could be let go, and they, they come out of their 70 years of Babylonian captivity, and now they are allowed to go back to their homeland. Well, guess where they, they resided? They were in this part of the world, this Persian Median part of the world. And many people, myself included, believe that wise men like this were exposed to Jewish believers of a Messiah. Maybe they even brought their Old Testament manuscripts with them and they, they shared or perhaps they even evangelized their captors and said, we believe there is a Messiah to be born who will be the Savior of the world. Look, even in Micah chapter 5, it says where he's going to be born. Look here in Isaiah chapter 53, it talks about he's going to be a suffering Messiah. And, and, and look at all the prophecies of this coming one. And so supernaturally, these wise men see a start. Now, we say there are three, but we don't know how many there are, right? Why do we say there's three? Because how many gifts did they bring? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, so there must be three. There may be, there may be at least three, maybe more. What about the star? This is interesting. I, I read something a couple weeks ago I had not thought about. It said it may have been a star, may not have been a star. It may have been the Shekinah glory of God leading them out of Persia like God led them with the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. That same Shekinah glory of God, they didn't know what else to call it. So they call it a star, this brilliant radiant light that is leading them as they traverse the countryside and it stops under there in Bethlehem. And the Bible says, remember we read it a moment ago, that they were rejoicing with exceeding great joy because they saw the fulfillment of that divine prophecy. These wise men, they came and they worshiped. Now I'm sore, not because of my wreck, because my son, one of my sons, took me to the gym the other day and about to kill me and I can't hardly move. Bryant, from these abs, so I'm still gonna do this, so. Oh, mercy. Oh, okay. I'm going to demonstrate what proskuneo means. Proskuneo in the Greek says, when they came, oh, listen to this. They, they came, they saw, they worshiped, and they gave gifts. Watch this. They came, they saw him, the Messiah. Now, proskuneo means to do this. Now, watch this. It means not only to put your face down, it means to put your forehead on the ground. Can y'all see that? There it is. That's the easy part. Now i got to get up. All right. Oh, we did squats too. Amen. Legs. All right. Thank you. Okay, good. All right. So they came. They saw. They proskuneo. It literally means to put your forehead on the ground in obedience, obeisance, in homage, in worship. And they bowed down. And the next thing they do is they gave gifts. And they, were, they brought gold to represent his purity of his deity frankincense, this beautiful fragrance and perfume that would reflect his life. And then myrrh, which is used for 
death and burial and even in embalming. And so many see perhaps even a foreshadowing of his life in the gold and the frankincense and myrrh. But I don't want you to miss this. In the first characters of Christmas, the wise men from the east came and they worshipped and they gave gifts. And that's what it means to worship God. It means to acknowledge who He is, bow down, and you give. You give of your finances. You give of your revenue. You give of your time. You give of your essence. You give of your being because He is worthy. He is a worthy, the only one worthy of our worship. Another interesting factoid about this nativity or about this Christmas message I came across was this from the Dallas Theological Seminary guys. They said, could it be I hadn't thought about this. That Joseph took the gold, the frankincense, and myrrh, and he was able to sell it and provide for his family so they could live in Egypt. I hadn't thought about that. So perhaps that's what they did. Because you know they have to go to Egypt. Why? Because Herod, the crazy man, ruthless king, slaughtering all the babies. So they go to Egypt and hide out, and then they make their way back to Nazareth. The last people I want to share with you just briefly today, and again, I apologize, I'm not talking about Mary, I'm not talking about Joseph, I'm not talking about the shepherds or the angels. Um, maybe, maybe next time we'll talk about them. But I want you to look at these guys. I call them the religious leaders, the knowledgeable, yet very blind. Herod calls the scribes, the lawyers, the Pharisees, and he goes, guys, you know your law, you know your holy book, where is the real king to be born? And they said, oh, that's easy. And they, and they give him this verse, and I think we have it on the screen, Micah 5, 2. Now, by the way, this is not Matthew chapter 2. This is Micah 5, 2 that's going to be basically verbatim in Matthew 2. It says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. Watch this whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So they say, oh, Herod, we, we know the answer to your religious trivia question. And to them, that's really all it was. It was just trivia. It was just the right answer you give when you're asked. Just like a lot of people born in America, you say, are you religious? Yeah. Uh, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm born in America. It's just trivial. It doesn't really mean anything. Okay? It didn't mean anything to them. Because if it meant anything to them, they would have run to Bethlehem. They would have been the ones lying down on their faces and bowing down and worshiping holy God. They knew it to be true, and yet with their hearts, they just could not embrace it. Like many of you today. Like many of you right here at Great Hills Baptist Church. Cognitively, intellectually. You know it to be true. You know it. You know it. You've heard it. You've heard it. It's emblazoned upon your mind, your psyche. You know you have the image of God. You know it's been marred and tainted by sin. You know there's a great chasm, a gulf within you. They know within your heart there is a Christ. There is a Messiah. Surely he came. All the world will shut down in a few days. Why? Because a baby was born in Bethlehem. You know it. You know it. You know it in your mind. But you will not surrender your heart. You will not do it. And many, many of you will not do it today. You will not do it today. You refuse to do it. You came today. Ma'am, I'm coming only because you're my grandmother. And you told me if I was going to get a turkey dinner next week, i got to come to church. And I'm in church. How about that? And I'm listening to that idiot up there ramble and bamble. And I just reject 
wholeheartedly everything he says, even though in my mind I know it's right, but in my heart I got to have my sin. I got to have my sin. I got to do what I want to do. And if that means I got to give up my sin and worship this king, I'll keep my sin. I'll go to hell and die because I want my sin. That's many of you today, and that's what you're going to do. I'm not changing your mind. I am not changing your mind. I can't. Only the Spirit of God can change your mind. Only the Spirit of God can arrest your soul right now and say, listen, listen. He's speaking the truth in your recalcitrant, stubborn heart. Would you surrender? Would you say, oh God, I'm a sinner. Oh God, have mercy upon my soul. You won't do it unless the Spirit of the living God falls on you. And when He falls on you, you will do it. In fact, your heart will be so broken, you will say, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I pray that you do today. Oh, I don't like these guys, y'all. i got to be honest with you, I just don't like them. They're so knowledgeable, and yet they're so ignorant. They know the very place he'll be born, but they refuse to worship him. But I can't be too hard on them. Because I used to be one. I was one. I was a Pharisee. I was somebody who knew a lot. Even a preacher had not surrendered my heart truly to God until one glorious day he had great mercy on me. Great mercy on me. I tell you, I, I think I'm, I was one of those that says, you know, I'm just going to make it to heaven. I'm going to earn my way. I'm going to make it. And God would just be indebted to me. But you know what, guys? That just doesn't work. God is not indebted to anybody. Your theology is truncated and twisted as mine was prior to Christ. You have to come. You have to repent. You just have to believe and trust in Him. As I said at my mom's funeral just a few weeks ago, I said, if you will only believe and really believe with your heart, you will be saved. And somebody from the crowd said, it's that simple. And it is. I want to close with this quote a friend of mine shared and Jeremy Roberts used to be an intern here at Great Hills many years ago. By the way, Jeremy, God's hand is all over him. I mean, his church is just exploding. I mean, just great things are happening in his life. I'm so honored to get to know him, be acquainted with him. Listen to this, what he said, and I want to close with this. Bethlehem. Yes, Bethlehem was an unlikely place for God to use. But God has a way of using people in places that others deem unlikely. Jesus could have been born in Jerusalem, the seat of religious power. He could have been born in Rome, the center of political power. Or he could have been born in Athens, the very epicenter of intellectual power. But he was not. He was born in Bethlehem because the hope of the world is not in religion, nor politics, or philosophy. The hope of the world is a babe born in Bethlehem, the Son of God. I'd ask you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes for a time of invitation. Before we leave this place today, we do want to implore you, we invite you. Don't harden your heart. Don't be so stubborn. Allow the Spirit of God to convict you, to speak to you. To... He has already convinced you what you know within your heart is true. God will do everything He can for you, but He will not say, 
Yes, I believe. He leaves that for you and for me. So we're going to invite you at this very moment. Would you yield yourself to Christ? Would you embrace Him as your Savior and as your King? What do you have to give up? What is it that you have to walk away from? You know what it is. You know, I believe with all my heart, and I was sharing with our staff this week, the great delusion, the great lie of Satan in America is what I, Satan, have to give you is better than what Jesus can give you. Please don't be duped. Please don't be stupefied by the lie from Satan. Oh, would you relinquish your sin? Would you give your heart to Christ today? So what do I have to do? What, what is it? You have to believe. Not a belief like the Pharisees and the scribes. It's more belief that Billy Graham talks about. A, it far exceeds an intellectual assent. It is a belief unto a changed heart. I believe, Lord. Forgive me of my sins. Others of you here today, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, can I talk to you for just a moment? Some of you dear saints of God, you're on that circuitous route now. And God has taken you through the journey. He's taken you through the storm. You're on your way from Nazareth to Bethlehem only to be rejected and go stay out in a winter cold stall. And you, you're confused and you're hurt and you're questioning the mind of God, the sovereignty of God. Listen, God's okay with that. God's okay with questions. God's okay with, I don't understand, what are you doing? Can I give you a word of encouragement? Do like William Carey did. And say, God, I don't understand. Yes, God, I am hurt, but God, I'm just going to keep trusting in you. I'm going to keep believing in you. And listen, friend, if you will do that, I promise you, God will come through for you. He will not let you down. He has not forgotten your toil, your labor, your plight, your difficulty, your pain. Trust in Him. Follow in Him. He sees you. He knows you. He's going to take care of you. Father, we give you praise today. We thank you for these characters of this first Christmas story. Thank you, Lord, that they're not mythical, fictitious, fabulistic stories, but God, they're real, live, flesh and blood human beings. Religious aristocracy, brilliant wise men, ruthless, political, clever king, adoring shepherds, evangelist shepherds, a virgin Mary, a a Joseph, angels, all of these great characters, and yet, Jesus, you are the preeminent character, the paramount one, and you're the one we worship today. And we just want you to know, God, we acknowledge you and your plan. We love you. We accept it by faith. And, Lord, I'm just praying again in my heart that you would do what I could never do, God. I, I, I'm not smart enough. I'm not convincing enough. I could never convince somebody to become a Christian. God, only you can do that. So I pray that you would convict them, break their hearts, show them their need, show them what a mighty God you are, what a Savior you are. May this day be the day that they say yes to Jesus. For it's in his name we pray and we say amen. God bless you as you stand to your feet for a few minutes. We'll stand in honor of the Lord. We'll stand in honor of the message we've heard. We'll make decisions. We'll make commitments to Christ today. We invite you to come. Give your life to Christ. Some of you need to come and follow the Lord in believers baptism others of you need to come and you need to unite with Great Hills Baptist Church make this place your church home why don't you come even now I'm going to be praying for you Terry's going to lead us in a song we invite you to come